the bullpen session. This is Patrick Lillis. Glad you're here. Glad you're listening. Glad everyone's okay. Excited to share with you my conversation with Rob Kampelitz, a sound designer, really generous collaborator, and just great artist. And it's a wonderful conversation. You'll hear it. And uh, it's funny, I was going to say it's great because it's really thorough and uh, talking in depth about the process of sound design and collaboration. And exactly why I wanted to talk to Rob. I was lucky I saw him at Cost of Living, went to one of the previews with the class, took the students to it, and there's this beautiful scene that we talk a little bit about. One of the characters is pretending to play the piano on the arm of another character, and the balance of the beauty of that's just very romantic and really well done, and a moment that will stay with me for a long time. It was really beautiful, and uh, then I saw Rob, I thought, oh, that's somebody I should talk to because he also is the sound designer for Fela. You want a Tony for that and one of my probably top five theater experiences seeing that show. So it was really just great to talk to him and I look forward to sharing that conversation with you. And, you know, I'm thinking about the middle of December, early December, but uh, classes are wrapping up. I just wrapped the class where I took students from Rhodes, Sewanee, and Center College to eight plays during the semester. They're up here doing internships in their different fields of interest. And just thinking about what a privilege it was to get to take them to theater. And then <laughs> Monday night was the final class and got to hear them do the report on the impact of theater. And they talked about how theater builds community, builds hope, uh, and creates social change. And it was just inspiring to hear. I mean, one of them is a theater major, but the other nine are not. And it was just lovely to hear how thoughtful and impactful theater is and how thoroughly they thought about it and coming out of the experience. And I'm just grateful to get to take them to shows and shows like Cost of Living was one of them and Between Riverside and Crazy and Downstate and My Broken Language and a bunch of eight plays and they were all fantastic. And uh, because they all, each one of them, you know, they resonated differently with each of the students and just glad to get to see theater through students' eyes who don't regularly attend. You know, I also knew that after our eighth play, I was like, oh, this is a lot of theater for them in a semester. And yeah, it was just nice because it it will stick with them, but mainly just hearing what they took away from the power and what theater can do was so nice. And, uh, And part of the reason theater is so powerful is because of how thoughtful and thorough we are in the work that we do and our approach to it. And you will hear that in my conversation with Rob, how, how thoughtful he is and uh, and the great different collaborations he's had and how thorough they are. And I'm going to let you enjoy that conversation. So with that, play ball. Living is an odd project because it's been it went through a lot of hands. Um, uh, Martina, I think, was working with Joe Bonnie from the beginning, but they started the show at Williamstown, and there was another sound designer then. Um, and that sound designer worked with another composer, so they were like a completely different team. And then, uh, for uh, whatever multitude of reasons. Uh, when the show was moving to New York, they wanted to keep the other rest of the design team and change out the sound team. Um, and on that, that was the off-Broadway iteration. So 
Um, but but I would be uh, disingenuous if I was to say like they had started with they were working with the um, Sati piano stuff. I I reimagined how it worked, but Sati was already and I don't know if that came from Joe or it came from the other designer. And I I'm blanking on the name of the original designer, but um, That's fair. Uh, we could look that look them up. But um, I, I my perception was that the reason they wanted to change, I think that designer was very invested in the composer that they were working with and they wanted to change the music. So they felt like they had to change the whole. Um, and I don't know that that was, I, I don't know the details of that. Right. But, um, and I, I, and one of the things that I always do, and I've done this, I've had it done for me and I've done it is when I am asked to replace someone, I always find them and I call them and I speak to them before I say yes, because I want to make sure that a that they are completely in the loop and and you know um and and i've had that you know like i i did this um uh this musical that when i did it it was called saving amy and it it had a different name when it actually made it tried to limp its way to broadway it was about amy semple mcpherson and uh uh it was a, a very intense project but you know i was i had done the original and, and ken travis called me and said hey they asked me to do this and you know, so that's one of the nice things. That's about, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually, a, it's a pretty common practice in sound. I don't know that it happens in other design fields. We're oddly, um, we're, we're, we have our own organization. Like sound, sound designers have, have um, maybe because we came up as, you know, it's funny. I, I was listening to your conversation with James um, and, and so you clearly, you know, and, and I think, and I also listened to your conversation with Narell. Um, I was like, oh, it's old home week. I could, you know, and, and with Dave Vansuelo, uh, great conversations, by the way, super interesting. And I think you'll hear probably many of the same things from Narell and James, as you, you'll hear from me. But, um, but one well, of James, the James also has a huge other story going on, which was yes. unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, an amazing different journey. And yet his conceptual center is the same as Norell's conceptual center, which is the same as my conceptual center. It's the same way Dave approaches fights. It's the, it seems like at a certain level, this is how design works, right? And we can get into that. But um, but yeah, so we, we sound designers have this very tight community. And so I, I did call and I did check in. And, um, and, and what ended up happening off-Broadway was that I wrote all, uh, wrote all the music or I wrote some of the music and I sampled some of the music and we used up some third-party music. Um, and that was its, its own process. And it was a long and, and pretty arduous journey. Um, and I think we were pretty happy uh, you know, with that production. But at the end of that production, they decided they wanted to explore music doing a totally different thing in the Broadway iteration. Um, so they wanted to move the music a little bit further away from sort of contemporary life and storytelling my, my design off broadway had a lot of textures and a lot of street and a lot of um and all of it very focused on on contemporary sort of a, a much more of a funk hip-hop sound and they wanted a much more sort of emotionally um focused score and so they went to mikhail uh suleiman to to do the music and so the third iteration was me designing with mikhail's music um uh, other than obviously that that sati and you know the the track that's in the bedroom when when uh when she comes spoiler alert when she comes thinking it's a date um <laughs> yeah uh horrible moment a uh, wonderful horrible moment um but everything else was was mikhail's music and and so it was a, a chance to work with another composer and I, I which i love doing um in my life i've i've had 
the real pleasure of being able to, you know, I, I can come at some things from one angle as a designer and then others as a composer and sometimes as a designer composer. And but like, I've, I've gotten to work with like Bobby McFerrin and Mikhail and, uh, you know, Bill Sims Jr. Some of the, some of the, the, the most talented living artists and, you know, Bill is not with us anymore, but like beautiful, talented artists who, uh, who just bring their, their game. And then I'm just yeah. working with it. So, um, so that process was, so the way that we built that sequence was we knew that we liked that music and we, we spent all of this time picking the track that he would play. And then we had to find a way to get the moment right. Cause the music has to be playing. Uh, if you haven't seen the show, there's music playing on the radio uh, and, and one character is bathing another character. Uh, and, uh, and so the music is playing from the beginning of the scene on the radio and we couldn't lock the timing of the entire scene to that so it was about like finding a way to finesse it so that the transition into the piece we wanted worked smoothly but it has to happen early enough that you don't notice it so about a, it, it's time so that about a minute uh, i think it's a minute seven before he starts playing is where you make the shift and and what we had to do was our, our amazing glorious uh stage manager um would would uh, literally, we we sent we spent once we locked down that scene roughly. We literally spent probably forty minutes in tech trying the go on this word, trying the go on this word, and then eventually, and eventually, David was like, our, our stage manager was like, and and I know what I know what the feeling is, and I know what the time is, and if they're going a little slower, I'll hesitate a couple more words, and if they're going a little, you know, so he really is because they're in the scene with them. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and and that I mean, those are stage managers get so so undercredited for that. And I always, always with stage managers, the first thing I say to them is, "This is what the intention of the cue is. It's never call the cue on the and or the pause after the and. It's always like, this is what the the dream of the cue is." Um, you've been in the rehearsal room and I love to be in the rehearsal room, but no one's been in the rehearsal room as much as the stage manager. Right. So I've been like, you, you have the rhythms and the vibes. So, you know, try and make, you know, it's a dismount. So it needs to land after this, or it's, you know, it's a launch or it's a, you know, and some cues, you know, some cues are pretty squishy. Some cues are, you know, like I'm fading down by three, three decibels so that by the time we get to this moment, it's a little clearer or, you know, so those, those, those are much easier, but anything that's a, that's a precise, a precision work. I, I feel like if, if I can communicate the intention and, and obviously it's an intention that's developed with the director and often with the writer, but if I can communicate the intention to the stage manager, then their artistry is, is all about that surfing the lines. Yeah. uh, No, that's great. I actually, my old, roommate who's on the first season of pod rick steiger stage manager you know we talked about just that idea you did noise funk and like knowing what you where you wanted the eye to go and what the point was and and knowing like oh that's what you're doing because also every variable can change in live performance and it's like what's the goal and you're that scene is so delicate and the two actors are behaving so organically that you don't want to be like for a minute seven, you have to hit this point, you know, without any breath, without any room for error. Yeah, no, absolutely not. So yeah, I mean that was and that was the process. And then with David, you know, and David Zayas, bless David Zayas, wonderful human being. He's like, I've never played an instrument in my life. 
<laughs> he's like, so you gotta help me out. So we sat together and literally like, um, would my, you know, we'd bring like an assistant or an associate with us and, and, and they would volunteer their arm and I would sit there and practice, you know, show him sort of, and that part of the idea is that he's not supposed to know how to play the piano, right? Like his character never learned. So it was a question of like, how do I get you close enough so that your fingers are the right shape and so that you know, you know, like, and, and, and it's totally great. Like, it's totally awesome if you sort of lose track of your left hand while you're doing something magical with your right hand, because you don't know how to, you know, and it was, and he was such a trooper. I mean, I, I love David. I know you know him through, through yeah. Labyrinth, um, but he's such a hard working actor. And that's, you know, everyone in that cast, what a dream cast. They're all, you know, there's no, you know, there's just, there's no, there's no egos. There's no fear. There's like, they're such fearless. Actors. Fearless. That whole production. Yeah. Yeah, so it was a, a beautiful and and so yeah, the 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 construction of that moment in a in a funny way is owed to multiple iterations and you know two designers and and Joe Bonnie who who I, I think I think Sati came from Bonnie from Joe, um, I I believe that's she was the origin of that but I don't I don't know but it it it, it it's all about finding that that moment that works and then finding that way to fit that moment to those performers right because yeah. everyone who does the shows i mean and, and martina didn't write in the specific music very wisely because every production of this show going forward is going to be a different you know a different cast the rhythm right, different, different chemistry yeah yeah so where did your design sensibility or where did that i your understanding of what the designer's role is in sound come from where did that get developed um i sort of feel like it was um a sort of a three-part journey um uh i started designing uh although i didn't even really know it was called designing but oh, i did i did actually um in high school i was i was very um lucky i, I grew up in um uh, a suburb north east of Boston called Andover. And it's there's a great prep school there, this Phillips Academy Andover there. And I went to the public schools. And then when I when I got up to high school age, they 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 sort of invite, they encourage the local kids to apply. They have a lot of scholarship money and um and I applied and I got in and I became a day student at this at this incredible, uh incredibly resourced school. And they used to do um we we were on trimesters and we would do uh nine shows a trimester so we would do 27 shows a year um wow. it was insane it was and it was mostly student run so there would be two faculty directed shows each year each each trimester rather and then so six of those were faculty and then the other 21 were student generated um and i sort of fell into that uh i i didn't i had never wanted to be a uh an actor i um I went along the the fall of my first year, fall of ninth grade year, a bunch of my friends were going to audition for a production of Richard III, and I, I went along because I had nothing better to do. And I auditioned, and, and I I looked um, I looked like I was nine. I mean, I really was a very young-looking kid. I, I hadn't broken 90 pounds yet. I mean, I was tiny. And, uh, and the director was like, oh, I need someone to play an eight-year-old that you could say the words so you could do it. And I, and I was like, all right, whatever. I don't know what I'm doing. And I went along and, um, and I was terrible. 
I was, I was so bad. I was fine. I could do the things. I could say the words. I could stand where they told me. But I was so scared on stage. I had to. Um, it was a modern, modern physical production, and I had to hit this kid on the hit hit Richard on the head with a basketball, and I missed him like in three or four performances or something. It was terrible. Um, but the director on that show um, said to me, we were talking about it at some point, just on a break. And I said to him, you know, you we're doing Richard the Third. You you don't have a, this this. You're clearly you, the kid's not wearing a hump on his back. He's not physically. And he's like, no, no. I put him in a wheelchair because uh, I didn't want to make some some you know fifteen year old try and walk around like the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And he said, in the second I put him in a wheelchair, I was like, oh, the set is ladders. Wow. And, and I was like, oh my god. And so I started to understand the idea of design as storytelling that early. Um, and then the director I worked with most, the faculty director I worked with most, was also a, a history teacher. And this is a little, I'm going to take you on a little journey. So I'm happy to go. To, yeah. Um, but uh, his name was Jay Rogers, and he uh, is an African-American teacher of American history, but he was also a director. And he uh, he happened to be my history teacher. And my 11th grade year there's this big american history class and you know it's very intense but also my 11th grade year which would have been 1990 the school was pretty out out ahead in that it was trying to wrestle with the idea of systematic uh op oppression racism privilege all of these ideas but we didn't have the language for it right. at the time so the school went out and they, they said we're going to try and make we're going to try a new working definition of the ism of racism or sexism, which is that if you're a member of the power group, you are sexist, you are racist. And it was a, a, a rough way to try and do it, but it was a clear idea. And I was having none of it. I was 16. I knew everything. I grew up Jewish in suburbia. I knew what, you know, you can't call me a racist. I got, I had my, I had my undies in such a twist and I, I started carrying on about it in American history class. And Jay, uh, my teacher, who was, and I, I want to say this right now, he was, this is the most generous act a teacher has ever done for me. Jay, Jay was like, listen, we're talking about reconstruction right now. Let's <laughs> talk about this after class. And after class, he said to me, Rob, you can leave campus, right? Because I was a day student. He said, like, you can leave campus. I said, yeah. He said, uh, let's walk down to the five and dime. And you can talk to me about this. I got to pick something up at the five and dime. I got to get some shaving cream. And uh, Andover was a pretty small town. And uh, I will say I grew up with one African-American student in my class. My, I had met no one like other than this young woman, uh, no people of color at all. In your public school. Down, in my public school. And then in the high school, it was a much more diverse, you know, and I was, you know, I had a number of friends who were from all different walks of life. And, um, but, but the town itself is very white. And, uh, and so we walked down to the five and dime and I'm complaining away. How could they, da, da, da. and Jay just listened. The man listened and nodded appreciatingly. And then he's, we got to the five and dime and he said to me, okay, I've listened to you. Now, before we go into this store, I want you to tell me who the security guard is going to follow. And I said, well, he's going to follow me. I have a hole in my jeans and I got, they, they thought I choplifted something from this place a year ago and I didn't, but they, you know, like they chased me out of the store. And he said, okay. And in we went. And of course, from the second Jay walked in the door, this dude was on his butt the entire time. And, uh, 
and you know, and, and he had, this is a man with, um, uh, I believe he had a PhD in history. I mean, more dignity than you can. And and we walked out, and I was in that same way that sixteen year old was like ridiculously under under his twist. I was devastated. I'm weeping, right? I was like, oh, how, you know, and 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 uh, I, in that wonderful way. I mean, I have a fifteen year old now, so the, like the depth of emotion that these kid that kids have access to. Um, and I said to Jay, what what do I do? Like, how can I fix this? And he he said to me, design my play. And I said, what does that have to do with anything? And he was, he was directing uh, James Baldwin's Amen Corner. And he said, you now have a tiny insight into the difference between the life that you live and the, difference the, and the lives that the characters live. And as a designer and a storyteller, your job is to help me translate to your fellow students who all are in your state of naivete this <laughs> lived experience, right? Help me tell the story. Help me be a bridge builder. And so that became so, – so sort of those two little high school core experiences of narrative and bridge building were what brought me to college. And I went to – I enrolled at NYU – um, out of out of high school, uh, and when you had at the time one of three uh, sound design programs in the country, and I enrolled at NYU as an undergraduate. And uh, by the time I got to the second year, which is when you get to take sound design class, they canceled the sound design class. Um, so I studied. I sort of studied scenery and lighting and costumes, and um, and I did a lot of internships and apprenticeships outside the school. Um, and, and David Byrne, who was the set design teacher, really taught you a conceptual approach. Again, sort of what is the story? What is the narrative? He brought in a lot of uh, emotional response stuff, which uh, Narelle has also – I remember Narelle talking about it. But a lot, he brought in a lot of the like, you know, how do you, how do you translate your response to the play into a visual world? And I sort of began to translate that then into, into Sonic. Um, but I did leave NYU with this sort of mindset of like, it's up to me to bring the ideas. I'm the idea man, right? Like the all designer. the sound cues. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the designer. I have to, you know, and, and you don't really work. I mean, I worked a lot with directors, uh, but they were young directors. And there's a lot of, there's so much um, ego stoking in design training. And I, I imagine in directing training, although I haven't taken it, but there's a lot of like, you are the emperor of the vision of the, you know. Um, and I definitely walked out of college with that for sure in my head i definitely walked out of school with like a lot of that um and it wasn't until like the 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 final stage of and i don't mean to be say final stage i continue to evolve but like the final stage of that 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 journey that growth journey was i had done um i did a show you know julia gibson directed in a tiny theater um it was like the Atlantic Theater's rehearsal spaces that we turned into with, you know, and Jane Cox lit it. And, and Jane is, uh, uh, this is where I met Jane and I did the sound for it. And, um, and I was supposed to have a month off afterwards. Um, and it was my first month off since I had graduated college. And Jane said to me, that's great. That's awesome. Have fun. Um, and she was going off to the O'Neill. Uh, to the O'Neill Playwrights Conference, Jim Houghton had just taken over. And Jane was coming up. Skip was returning. Skip Mercier was the set designer. He was returning. Jane was the new lighting designer. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. It's such a fancy thing. Congratulations. It's huge. And 
off she goes to the O'Neill and she gets there and they're in their first meetings and Jim is like, but where's our sound designer? Cause they just restaffed based on right. the staffing. And uh, rec- the stage manager who had come back was like, Oh no, Lloyd didn't believe in sound design. And Jim was like, Oh, but all these plays have so much sound in them. How do you get the sound? And she was like, Oh yeah, usually we have an intern who like has a sound effects library and they just sort of, and and Jim was like, oh God. So uh, Nick Schwartzall was the production manager at the time, and and Nick is like, okay, I get I open up my list. And Jim goes, well, I did just work with this sound designer who has the month off, because it, this was literally four days before the conference began. And so that, how are they going to find someone? So there I was, I was uh, all of maybe twenty five, and uh, and Nick called me up, and I said, oh, I could take the month off, or I could. And I jumped on my motorcycle and packed my bags and rode up to Waterford. And uh, and that is where I truly became a grown-up sound designer. That was where, because they do so many shows so fast, there's no time for it to all be your idea. There's no time for it to be. And I, I literally pulled up on the bike into the first design meeting. And and it, the design meetings were gorgeous these are this is again this is an invention skip mercier died uh last year um he was the gift that he left the legacy that he left um behind that that has changed i think an aspect of new plays in american theater uh was this vision of like okay we're gonna have this meeting but the meeting's not with the director this meeting is with the playwright and the vision of the meeting is to is to let the playwright express the world of the play, help them move away from prescriptive stage direction and help them have a deeper understanding of the environment that they're creating to own the character of the world of the play as well as the character of the characters. And this is something that he he did with such magical grace and kindness and, and it was never... Um, uh, it was never confrontational, and it was never about what is my vision for the play. It was always about how do we, how do we get your vision out of it, and then can we find ways to bake that into the play so that your play doesn't get done in a way you don't want it to be. Right. Yeah. And and it's just besides the people returning, this is a new muscle for the playwright. Absolutely. It was an entirely new muscle for most, almost all these players. And many of these writers took that and, and went on, you know, uh, Adam Rapp and Gina Gianfrido and Brooke Berman. And like, these are writers who, who have continued to be leading voices in a, in a, in our country. Um, and, and Skip was there for 17 years before I got there. So, I mean, Skip must've, must've spoken with 25 or 30 years of, of writers. Um, and sitting and watching him and just taking a lesson from him uh, over the course of that summer and, and really learning how to help draw the writer's uh, vision out and working with all these incredible directors. I mean, I think that first summer, Liz Diamond turned to me at some point and said, um, you know, I, I was bringing her sound cues and she said, uh, she's directing this, this wonderfully ridiculous play. Um, uh, and and uh, and she said, Rob, you're buttering the butter. 
And I said, what do you, what am I doing? She said, the bread already has <laughs> butter on it. Don't put more butter on it. The bread, you know, the actors, the bread is the script and the butter is the actors. Give me some jam. Give me some Vegemite. Give me something. Bring something, something interesting to the, you know. And so, um, you know, so many, so many of these. And, and also moments of like, okay, I'm trying to design four plays a week, you know, at the, at the O'Neill. And, and only essentials. You know, we're not trying to do a complete design. And, but, um, but, you know, it got, it got to the point of like, you have an idea? Great, I'll take it. Any idea? You know, I mean, I don't, I don't care who's got the idea. If if someone someone says, let's try this piece of music, let's do it. You know, and yeah. and so we would do we would do all of that so fast and so delightfully. And you know, you take them all in four hours. Um, and if you can't get it in in four hours, it doesn't go in. So, I would say that that was the final major early career formative moment for me. And then you know, I'm always trying to learn more and learn better. But also those conversations that he was facilitating about the, the world, the character of the world has to shape how you're thinking about the character of the world, right? Because it's no longer a literal design. And it I know the, and, and the design process of the emotional response, but then there's like, oh, there's this other way of thinking of the whole context of, the character of the world of the story that the playwrights created. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's about trying to, trying to get a deeper understanding of the, um, the way the story is being told in a, in a funny way. Each play has, um, from my experience, it, it, it's got inside it, this, the way that it wants to make that, that bridge to the audience that Jay Rogers talked to me about all those years ago, which is uh, unique to each and every production. Um, you know, there are, there certainly are commonalities. And if you work with a director who's working with the same player, like um, I've had the gift of being able to do a few uh, August Wilson's with Ruben Santiago Hudson. And so there is a commonality to the way that Ruben sees August's work that that then connects to the audience so that there's there's a, a little bit of a sort of known landscape there but but even then you know the difference between Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Two Trains Running is uh, th there is a there's a rhythmic similarity but there's a completely different storytelling structure Right, yeah. you know, in two trains running, there's no performative aspect. Whereas with Ma Rainey, they're doing the song over and over again. Right, so there's a there's a a theatrical, a, a more theatrical relationship, you know, and the and the sort of crazy recording artist who's always upset because ah, oh, it's another <laughs> record. I you know, and you know, and like you have this this sort of comment on the situation that's happening whereas in two trains it's the most fourth i think it's his most fourth wall play yes you know and so um but but every play has a um there's a poem in each play that wants to be read you know uh, to the to the audience in a different way um it's like when, when i was younger i used to think that all poetry readings sounded the same you know, and it's because they're all bad. You know, <laughs> good poems sound unique. <laughs> you know, yeah. every, you know, don't you can't read you can't read, you know, Naruto the same way that 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 you know, Ginsburg that you read yeah. Ginsburg or yeah, I mean, come on, please, you know, so many, you know, so every every uh, I just I just had a, an Eddie moment where he's like trying to think of a poem and he's like, it's not like poetry, like poetry. <laughs> Such a that's a, one of Martinez 
I mean, she's so many great moments in that play, but, um, but yeah, you find, you got to find that, that language that is the connective tissue. And it's just, for me, it's a sonic language, you know, for Norell, it's a, it's a physical language for, uh, you know, for a, a lighting designer, it's more of a painterly language. Um, you know, for a costume designer, it's like a, an embodied character outline. But each one of the uh, each one of and projections as well. You know, that there is there there is a journey to go go on with the text. That in an ideal situation, you're with the writer, with a living writer, um, and you can go on that journey together. Um, but you know, often you you aren't right. You know, I I I I met August at the O'Neill one summer, but we never I never got to work on a new play of his. Um, you know, so so and you know, obviously with the Shakespeare and the whatnot, you've got you know um, uh, fixed text. The text is done. So then you have to go on the journey with the with the with the script and and you know with your allies, your team, your director, and your fellow designers, um, your stage manager, your actors. Everyone is. I feel like we're always like um, mining the the text for the for its essence and when you're you know earlier you said you love to be in the room when you are able to be in the room because i think sometimes you know you bring a sound designer into the room and there's this impulse for like oh we want you to add product as opposed to engage process and how do you early on how do you if you get to be in the room if you that availability is there what are you doing? My hundred percent favorite rehearsal days are table work days when I'm doing when I'm bringing nothing. Hundred percent, and it's funny. I I think um, the 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 moment I discovered table work, and we didn't do table work in college. It's interesting they didn't teach that stuff in college. I only discovered it, uh, you know, fairly early afterwards. Um, I'm there to, I'm literally there to do that mining, to do that learning of what the play's rhythms are, what its underlying meanings are. I love the dramaturgy. I'm a total dramaturgy nerd. I I, I will, you know, we we ended up in this whole conversation. I ended up uh, on, on cost of living in this whole conversation with Greg about the year, we were talking about what year it was because we we're trying to sort of set the year because it's in the recent. It, we we decided it was pre-Trump election, um, and and we were just sort of thinking about like who is Greg and who is his character and why is he studying politics right now? And we were thinking about the uh, was it the five five twenty eight? Is that the the thing that yeah the, 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 five thirty eight five thirty eight, which was founded by sports bros. Right, and we were talking about how, like, suddenly, bro, broy sports dudes who dug statistics were into politics, and we felt, and we, I, Greg and I had this whole conversation about how we felt like John was one of those guys who was like, "I'm not that," you know. And then suddenly he was like, "Oh, wait, politics can be boiled down to numbers and thoughts and da-da-da. and so we ended up in this whole totally, and who knows if it ended up on the stage or in his performance or in any in, in any way, but like. That was so useful to me to think about like who is John and where is he coming from, so that when I need to sculpt a sense of his world, I know what it feels like. And uh, you know, and and definitely, especially when I'm composing, that's incredibly useful to me because I'm, I'm I'm trying to compose as much from the characters' worlds as the larger world. Like I'm trying to find that bridge between the character world and the larger world. Um, 
So I love table work. When I am, once we get into the rehearsal process and I'm watching reps of scenes and I'm watching explorations and staging explorations and, oh, let's go over here. Oh, that doesn't work. And what is that story being told? I'm watching the storytelling. Like I'm learning how the director is telling the story on these bodies in this space. Um, and unlike the, the advantage that, the advantage that lighting projections and sound designers have over set and costume designers is that most of the set and costume design work has to be done before the rehearsal process begins. And we get to be more responsive to the, um, to the living development of the work. Uh, And, and, and set dressing and properties really are the places where a set designer gets to like keep making adjustments, but they're already building the darn set before first rehearsal begins, especially in, in Lord and commercial theater. Yeah. uh, I have to say as a director, it's, and I'm sure the designers feel the same way. I'm like, Oh, that's always frustrating because you're going to discover something, you know, exactly. Right. And then there's always that meeting, right. Where where you're like, I need another door or can I get two more feet or, Oh, this is too, too far upstage. You know, like there's always that moment. And you think, gosh, the system is not built to respond. And, and so we get as a sound designer, I get to respond in a way. um, So I'm watching all of that develop. And then I, I do a lot of my work um, in with one ear, one headphone in. So I'll do, I'll have like one headphone in and even as I'm, especially again, if I'm writing music, but even as I'm developing layering or soundscapes or sculptures, I'll be working with them in the room and they can't hear what I'm listening to until I get to a point where I'm like, okay, I think this will actually help elevate the conversation. And then I'll play it for just, the, you know, I'll, I'll have a little speaker and I'll play it just for, just loud enough for the director to listen to it. And it'll just be me and the director while the actors work it. And if the director goes, yeah, I think that'll help, then we'll point the speaker at the actors and and listen to the work against the actors and see if it actually either gives them something to push against or something to raise them up or something, you know, like see if it's adding something other than butter, you know what I mean? Like if, <laughs> if, it's, if it's adding something to the conversation. Um, and there are some shows where, you know, there, there was one show, Emily Mann called me to do a show and she said, I'm not sure if there's any sound in the show. And I read the play, um, and I said, I don't, I don't think there is any sound in the show. And uh, and she said, well, we come design the show anyways, because I, 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 would, I would hate to not have, like to want you and not have you there. Uh, what was it? It was, um, darn, I can't remember the play. Uh, it was a play about a professor and a student. And it was just two people, two women of two generations. But in the end, I think we put like three cues in the show, and I, it, and and that was all it needed. You know, some, something had to happen outside a window at some moment, and and I did a top of Act One and a top of Act Two. I think that was what we did. You know, and 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 uh, um, you know, and the second act happens in a bar, and even so, we were like, oh, we don't really want bar music. It's not, you know, um, sure, naturalistically speaking, we would have bar music, but we don't. Um, you know, and then other plays, uh, <laughs> I'll never forget doing uh, The Thugs with Annie Kaufman and, and uh, Adam Box play. And, and there were, there wasn't a moment, there was one moment of silence in the entire play. Wow. So The Thugs, the thugs was sounds, soundscaped from the, and Adam even wrote, like, we did all these workshops. It was wonderful. New York Theater Workshop was very supportive. We didn't do it there. We did it at Soho Rep, but and, and NYTW gave us uh, a lot of space to workshop it. And, and you know, I would come in there and I, you know, I, I basically brought in a, a, a keyboard and I played the environment. So I would play the, you know, I made all these crazy, wonderful loops of like, 
HVAC and rain and elevators. And, you know, we would literally build, we would sculpt these scenes. And after, I think three workshops, we went, went and then went to do it at, at Soho Rep. And Adam said to me, okay, now, now you have a problem. I said, what? He said, you've done such a good job. I've actually written you a joke and you have to land it. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I want scene zero to be a sound joke with no actors. You need to make the audience laugh. And I was like, okay, game on, Adam. I, I can do this. I can do this. So we, what we did was we literally, um, you know, you're in an office. It's a temp office. And, um, and the lights slowly rise, and it's supposed to be an empty office. So the lights come up on an office, and I, I, I literally, without telling anyone I was doing this, I ran down to, we were on Canal, you know, we're down at Soho Rep. I ran up to Canal Street. I bought, a, you know, a throw phone, a disposable phone, and I, I found a dumbass ringtone, and I put it on ring and vibrate, and it was one of those, it was a flip phone, and I, you know, and I, and I paid 50 bucks to put a, to activate it, and I balanced it right on the edge of the table of a desk on the on the stage and so and no one knew what was going to happen and the lights came up and i called it and it started ringing and vibrating until it fell off the stage and then the stage manager bless her heart was like and lights go and that was it and it hit the deck and she called lights out and it was like <laughs> and adam was like okay you win you got it so, you know so but that show literally had the only moment of silence the, the whole play is all about how it was Adam's 9-11 play, um, but his it was his response to the notion that um, that everyone is paying attention to everything but what we should be paying attention to. Um, and so in the narrative of the play, there's this sort of gossip mill going around about there are three people who have died in the building and maybe people are dying in the building and there's all this, you know, like, meanwhile, there's a couple and the 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 woman works in the office and her boyfriend keeps calling and you know at some point he shows up and he's obviously physically abusing her and um and 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 he shows up in the in the in the play and he comes off the elevator and they're having an argument like a whispered argument and then he grabs her and and we went to total silence and then he lets her go and the elevator dings and down he goes and um and that was the only moment of silence in the whole play and and more powerful than than any any sound i could have put under it but but by having this sort of incredible density of sound we we achieved and ben stanton lit it and he did a beautiful job lighting that moment as well it was a, it was a definitely a team effort um but we achieved something really like uh heartbreaking and yeah. no and we weren't commenting and that was sort of adam's goal was to be like okay okay move on you know and then you know and then all this other chaos ensues and there's a big you know someone falls down the stairs there's a blackout and a thunderstorm and a you know and uh god i think i uh i, I had a did i have a co-designer i don't even remember uh, i was working with jeremy lee on that as either my associate or my co-designer and he he would like recorded we threw a watermelon down the stairs of a hallway building so he could make the sound of a human falling it was like Oh my God. But um, yeah, so it, it really varies. You know, sometimes in the rehearsal room, I'm throwing massive amounts at the, at the, at that cast. Um, and sometimes nothing at all until we get to the, um, you know, until I, I try not to, I really don't like it when the first time a, a cast hears music or sound is in tech. I feel like that's a recipe. Not fair. For yeah. It's not fair to them. And it's not fair to me. Like, yeah. I feel like, I feel like 
I want them to, and and certainly not in designer run. Never throw. I never throw anything new at anyone during designer run. What a mean thing to do. Um, this designer run. They're already nervous enough. The artistic director's come into the room. The director's already like on on edge. But no. So I love to try and layer stuff in. And and again, workshops. Uh, you know, which are which are huge to me. The 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 sort of workshop slash devising. We call it devising now, but really, it's 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 been around forever. It's process. Just, yeah. yeah letting the writer explore and and I've worked with a lot of writers who love to engage um to love love to engage me directly lemon anderson is 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 one of my favorites you know he's really like really likes to sort of play with rhythm and and play with tone and play, you know so th- there's um there's a real joy in a lot of that yeah know? i i want to ask just for purely one of my favorite theatrical experiences is Fela. And, um, you know, because we talk about a play you did with Emily where there's three cues, and then you talk about one of the great, like, rock and roll pieces on Broadway. And not not how did that come to you? Because I think that that's always a different story. But, but what is the relationship of, you, you know, you're a sound designer who's also all of a sudden doing a, a beautiful historical play and a rock concert at the same time, you know, and that sounds hard. (laughs) (laughs) It was hard. It was one of the hardest things I ever did. It was hard. Um, uh, And wonderful, hard, hard, fulfilling, hard. I will tell you how it came to me because it's a funny little mini story, which is that um, Bill was, Bill was starting um, when he first started playing with the idea, Steve Handel actually approached Bill T. Jones about it. Steve was the producer and he, Steve, Steve is, is a huge Fela fan. And he was like, I just want the world to know Fela's music. And he was like, what if I, what if I get together with this visionary living American artist? Um, and so Steve went to Bill and they did a workshop with no technology at all. It was just dancing and, you know, a boom box, I think. And, they, and then they did the second workshop and they wanted to bring in the band and they, they knew that they wanted to work with Antibalas, who was, who was sort of the, the preeminent Afrobeat band in, at least in New York and I would say in America, um, at least at the time. And so they brought Antibalas in, but then Bill couldn't hear anything. And he was like, so give me, give me some sound people. And so they, you know, Roy Gabay, who was the general manager, just called, I think one dream sound and said like, send, send two speakers and someone to mix something. And, you know, and some, some poor schlub, you know, got sent in with four, you know, four wireless mics and, and a pair of speakers on sticks and just kept saying, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And Bill was like, I, I don't know. I can't hear. I don't, you know, and this poor person was clearly, I'm sure they, they're probably an excellent sound person. I have no idea. Uh, but, but, at the end of the workshop, Bill turned to Roy and he goes, get me the most opinionated sound designer in New York. <laughs> and Roy literally like went through his Rolodex and was like, here, <laughs> and gave him my number. Um, Congrats. You know, yeah. you have a brand. That's I good. Have a brand. I absolutely <laughs> have a brand. Um, it was it was a beautifully difficult process. Bill, Bill is the epitome of the best idea in the room is the right idea. Um, he holds no one to a higher standard than himself. Um, but he holds himself to an astronomically high standard. So he expects real focus and commitment from everyone in the room all the time. Um, and he, he will, I mean, if, if, if it weren't for his partner Bjorn, he would work himself right to death. Bjorn literally comes in and says like, Bill, we're gonna take a break. Bill, we're gonna, you know, like every, every day of every workshop, 
the lunch break was a design meeting. You know, there was never, he's just nonstop. Um, and, and so what we were trying to discover was how do we tell a story of uh, polygamous, pot smoking, uh, you know, traditional religious traditionalist, African religious traditionalist, uh, and make it a play. <laughs> you know, th this dude who was literally like the inventor of a form of music that maybe, I would say like most Americans have heard influences of, but had no idea that they, you know, you think about like uh, Talking Heads Remain in Light, right? That album is all Afrobeat beats, you know, the the the, the rhythm section and, and David Byrne really acknowledged that. Um, he's wonderful in that, but like, the influence is everywhere, but no one knows what Afrobeat, and very few Americans know what Afrobeat is. So there's this whole complicated conflict between how do we tell a story and how do we blow the walls off the building, right? And um, and again, a lot of it's about dynamics. Um, the early workshops, we really focused a lot on on the musicality, on the dynamics, on the storytelling. As we developed Bill... Um, Bill wanted to uh, work very hard on removing uh, fourth wall stuff. He really was very interested in like, I want it to be, it, it, this is before we used the word immersive, but we were really pushing towards immersive. Um, and he also said, he said, I want everyone immersed, but I also want to be able to close my eyes and know where someone is standing on the stage when they're singing. Like I need, so it was this sort of complicated need of like big rock and roll or not rock and roll, Afrobeat, which is a different sound than rock and roll. Right. Like it, it is its own sound. Um, so big, like a big sound, a big Afrobeat sound, uh, which is very polyrhythmic and and um, occupies, it fills the whole, the cool thing about Afrobeat is it fills the entire sonic spectrum. Like when you think about um, what, you, what a human can hear from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz, right? And really, let's be honest, Anyone who's not a baby, maybe nine, maybe seventeen thousand hertz, but um, but that like that range, much of um, Western music, uh, especially Western pop, lives in a smaller section of that range. Classical music tends to go broader, but um, but Afrobeat is a pop genre that gets you all the way across the spectrum. It, the, the instrumentation is so broad, the percussion is so deep, and the vocal techniques and the, um, you know, how much bass it has and how much, like the two guitars, there's always two guitars, so that, that someone is often playing a, a higher register. So you're getting, you get such a multi timbral sound. And their sounds, I mean, this is where Fela was a genius because he took, Fela took, um uh so many different musical styles he you know you know uh he took his um uh congas from cuba and he took his drums from africa but he took his trap set from you know the the the, the drum kit from rock and roll and he took james brown's guitars and he took um uh the sort of one you have James Brown's guitar, but you also have the High Life guitar. High Life was like a jazz derivative in uh, in Lagos, very popular in Nigeria in the fifties, and it has that like shriller that like that thinner sound. So you've got this 
guitars playing through distortion on one end and this very clean, thin guitar on the other, you know. So he really put all of these sounds together. And then his vocal sounds, which drew both on traditional Nigerian sound and also on his grandfather's uh, very westernized religious training. He was, his grandfather was a, was a minister, uh, Reverend Kuti. So his grandfather had a, a choir, a, a sort of Euro-style Euro choir. So he just like put all of that together. And so how do we put all that in a room and how do we get all of that vibe and energy and like power? And, and then you add a layer of the fact that you've got to pull it all together. And then the lead vocalist is um, speaking in pidgin. He's not speaking in traditional English. And there, Peter Negrini, who was the, the projections designer, just was like, we're going to put words on the stage. I, he's like, I don't love... I'm not a I'm I'm not a super title artist. He was doing so many complex things, but he's like I'm going to find ways to incorporate the words into the imagery from the beginning. This wasn't the the the, the lyric putting lyrics up wasn't something that he like got forced to add. This was he's like how do I design each song so that as we have images going by, the images and the words are flying together. Um and so that that was a great help. <laughs> You know, um, because then you weren't getting that, you know, I get that you get always get there's always any time. I mean, don't get me started on my rock musical diatribe, which is that, you know, rock and roll in rock and roll. You you don't hear you never understand all the words, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, my my wife used to think that the lyric was big old Hal in a lineup rather than big old jet airliner. <laughs> right. Like. Right. You know, because what the, the music is the sound. That's that's the thing, you know. Right. Exactly. The vocal is a sound. Yeah. It's part of the music, the voice, you know. And so in a way, we were freed to some degree. Um and, and that allowed us to sort of go balls to the wall with that with it. Um and and then, you know, but then there were these other tasks of imaging. And of course, saw uh none of our fellas played the sax or the trumpet. So I also had to do this like magic trick of making it sound like the saxophone was coming from him uh when he when when that when the fellow wasn't playing it um so there was like an imaging game that had to happen which is which is all about i used a, a tool um that i had been introduced to by an engineer named bob edder um back when i was assisting mark bennett mark was one of my chiefest mentors as a sound designer and i was assisting mark and we did um uh what was the what's the play um golda it's called golda's balcony um and and bob brought to us this idea this tool called timax which is a a very complicated and i won't bore your listeners it's a very complicated <laughs> um sonic imaging system where it uses it basically um you can fool the, the human brain we have this evolutionary thing where the place that we hear sound from first is where we think the sound is coming from. And that's so that we know when the tiger roars, we know which way to run, right? You don't know. So um, you can set up sound systems with zones on the stage that basically image the entire sound system to that zone or to another zone or to another zone. And so I, I, I created this um, very, very, very complicated imaging system that also included surrounds and also include. So it was, it, it was, a, it was a crazy journey. And one of the things that, that happened along the way a couple of times someone from the afrobeat world would come and say like doesn't sound like afrobeat and i'd say like okay help me help me get it there like not 
because there was there's often an aggression with that there is yeah. a, there is often an aggression in in our industry and we have to acknowledge it i mean the the music director tried to get me fired at one point like it was things got rough um but one of the things I, I try to do, and I, it's hard when you're under pressure, but I try to do is I try to always acknowledge that I could know more. Like I could know more about this. So even if I've done it a hundred times, there's more I can know. And certainly working, I'm working, I didn't grow up listening to Afrobeat, right? And, and all the Afrobeat I got, I got to listen to when I started working on Fela was all recorded, right? It wasn't, I wasn't going to live Fela concert, Fela was dead. Yeah. Right. And and at that time, Seyun, his son, wasn't really being heard in the States. You couldn't really go. One of the things that the musical changed was like, I honestly think it helped Seyun get a foothold. And Afrobeat, live Afrobeat happened a lot more. You could go hear Antibalas and that was it. So, like, and 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 that was a sing a modern interpretation. So, you know, I I every time someone came to me and said it doesn't sound like Afrobeat. I would say, okay, help me. What, what is missing? What is too much? Like, help me, you know, d please don't just say it doesn't sound like everybody because I don't know what that means. Like, that's not a usable, that's not an actionable note. Um, you know, and there was always differing opinions and there was always, but everyone has knowledge. Everyone has knowledge that they can share with you. And so, you know, they always say like, uh, Everyone knows two two jobs in the in the theater. They know their job and the sound designer's job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 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 there is tr some 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 truth to that because we all live in a sonic world. We all everyone has their their playlists and their earbuds and their you know what do you listen to when you work out and what do you listen to you know and everyone has their their lived spatial experience as well of like I was in a place where it sounded like this or it sounded like you know and we may not even be conscious of it but. But sculpting that, and, and of course, theater is not reality. It's not movies. I, I've done a couple of movies in, during the pandemic, and it's not movies, right? Like if right. I put a real rainforest on stage in a rainforest scene, the, the director's like, oh, my God, my brain's exploding. It's too loud. There's not, there can't be this loud. Heck, I mean, even if you walk outside, you know, I, one of the things I do with my students is I make them stand outside, and I say, okay, write down everything you hear, everything. Now, when you go into a theater, we're in a um, a heightened space. So the we've done everything we can to muffle the outside world. We don't, you know, the walls are black, right? We're starting from nothing, right? And every time an actor walks out on stage, you, the audience, are reading into everything they're wearing. Whereas when I get dressed in the morning, I don't really expect, you might check out my shoes, right? Like if I wear an interesting jacket, you might notice it. But but you're not going to make decisions about everything that I am based on the color palette or the cut or the, you know, and in the same way, any sound that we introduce in the theater has more meaning than a sound that we experience in, in life. So know all of the sounds that are in life and then pick and then curate what you put into the, into the space. Because of course, early on, someone would say to me like, well, you know, it should sound like an August night. And I'd be like, okay, I'll go record an August night. And I'd take my recorder out and record. And they'd be like, oh my God, there's so many freaking frogs and crickets. And oh, this is terrible. I can't do it. You know, and he'd be like, no, oh, you need the essence of, right? Let's find the essence of. And and we would, you know, eventually I learned how to boil it down and 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 get get closer to those essences. 
I want to ask two questions. One, when you talked about the first person you assisted, I think, right? Bennett, the last uh, Mark Mark Bennett was one of the, he wasn't the first, but he was one of my sort of like critical mentors. Yeah. Like, how did you? I don't know if I should ask this question. Maybe what I would ask is, how do people get their first job, and how did you get that first like professional job? Not the high school, which is great, you know, somebody inviting you into doing it, but then it's like, oh, there's this little production in this little rehearsal studio that we're going to do, or something of that equivalent, and where you're doing it on your own, you know, and is it by, I don't want to answer it for you. I'll let you answer that. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. Again, I, I was listening to, uh, to the interview with Narelle and that, that is a story that's very different from my, you know, your, her first gig in the, in the States was at New York theater workshop. My, my first gig, I mean, not New York theater workshop, but uh, stage and film. Stage and my, film. My, you know, my first gig in New York was, you know, uh, lighting a show with 12 lights on six dimmers in a, in a space that, you know, eventually got torn down, you know, uh, um, uh, so everyone has a different trip. Everyone has a different journey. Um, my work all came from my work. So even the way, so, um, when I was a student at NYU, I worked in the, on the lighting crew and, uh, someone, at Manhattan Theater Club was looking for a light board operator in the second stage of the their the, you know which they don't even have anymore which is the, but they had a smaller stage at at City Center and they were paying $200 a week i mean it was it was horrible i can't believe that that was that they got away with it but it was a non-union job and it was and i was uh my my last year i was finishing halfway through the year so um I only did three and a half years at NYU and I couldn't have a work study job because um, it, I would have needed to stay the full year. And so uh, they offered me this job and I said, okay, I can, I can fit this around my, my schedule. It's mainly at night. And um, I took this job and a stage, you know, and I was just was there and diligent and worked hard. And um, a PA on the show said, hey, I'm stage managing this thing at Classic Stage Company, and they need someone who's sort of somewhere between a sound designer and, a, and an engineer. Um, and it was a, a production that uh, Paul Lazar and Annie B. Parsons were doing. And Annie B., they co-direct, but Annie really is also sort of the sound designer. She sort of knows what she wants, but she didn't, especially at the time, know how to get it and how to edit it and how to do deal with that. So it was sort of a, a glorified sound engineer job, but I went in there and I, I, you know, I, I went to the Lincoln Center library and I found the, 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 the music. She was always all period music. It was a Don Juan returns from the war. And I, 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 um, you know, got all the, the records out and I put them onto reel to reel and I edit spliced and edited and, and, and had, the, you know, and, and then I teched the show with Annie and Paul and the people at CSC, uh, Jason Loweth was at the time the production manager there. And Jay, he's now the artistic director at the Olney, but he, he, um, Jason said, well, you, you want to come back and do the next assist on the next show that, that has a sound designer. And I said, oh, sure. And that was Mark Bennett was designing that show, and I assisted Mark, and I sort of became a resident assistant at the theater. So that was part of the path. But then another part of the path was like someone I met somewhere else was doing. You know, it was always a someone on the show saw what I was doing and gave my name to someone else. And little by little, I'll never forget. It was uh, so I finished college in '94, and 
it was March of 96 and I did five shows in the month of March. And that was the first time I ever paid my bills purely by being a designer. And it, it didn't recur again for a while after that. Also, there were many, many months, you know, where I was like pulling seats out of a theater to pay the bills where I was, you know, so I, I did a lot of design adjacent work and I sort of came up and this is not uh, terribly unusual. I kind of came up doing both design work and engineering work at the same time. And it's funny, we call it engineering. It is not engineering. There was no engineer's degree in it. It's sound work. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but I would do, so I sort of was growing up both, both vines, as it were. And um, I was assisting Mark, and then I was his associate. And then um, he had a show at Roundabout's Criterion Center that um, needed a different sound operator. The house sound operator wasn't up to dealing with it. So he asked if I would do that. And that show tur turned out to be A View from the Bridge, which uh, Michael Mayer directed, Alison Janney and Anthony LaPaglia and Brittany Murphy recipes. And, and you observed that show. That was the first time we met. Yeah. Um, yeah. and that, and that show, I remember you as a director's guild observer. I, I was just, I, I was visiting and I was not officially on the thing. I just came a couple of times to watch, but yeah. But I remember you, I remember you then. And we, you know, we moved to Broadway and they had to buy me into the union because we had, they kept trying to find subs for me. And because the way Mark had designed the show, it was a very complicated sort of computers and samplers and and real and, and mini disc decks, and it, it needed a lot of love. And for some reason, if you hadn't been a part of its development from the beginning, you couldn't get the rhythms into your hands. So they they bought me a union. Well, I had to pay for the union card, but they weighed in, and I got a a, a card in the international, not local one, but a, an ACT card, which is allows you to mix on Broadway. And so I was mixing on Broadway as I was designing and both things were coming up together. And in 2000, I started at the O'Neill and right about at the same time, I was subbing a lot at the Lion King as the like third sound person. It's a three person sound team. And I was there more and more often. And uh, Jimmy Maloney, who was the, had electrician had one of his guys pull me aside and sort of say, Hey, you want to be full time here? Like you could become one of Jimmy's boys. And it was very, felt very mafiosi. It was like, uh, you know, he was like, he called me Robbie. Right. Like, you could join right. the family. Exactly. And, and he said, you know, we'll guarantee you all this work. You'll, you'll have, you know, we'll teach you every electrics job on the show. So you'll learn all the sound jobs, all the electrics jobs. And you'll always be working here and we'll, he'll put you on load ins and you'll make a butt ton of money. But, but he said, but you got to give up this design crap. I need you three years only working for Jimmy. You don't take any other calls. You don't work for anyone else. You're just Jimmy's guy. And at the end of those three years, you'll get into local one because you have to do three years earning a certain amount of money and you can do whatever the heck you want with your life. He said, but you got to Jimmy will do this if you, if you give him three years. And I, I, I was really conflicted, you know, and I was working with like Michael John Garces and I was working with Ethan McSweeney and I was working with Loretta Greco and like, I'm, I'm working with all these like thrilling artists and, uh, and I had started designing it at the signature. Um, I worked with Stephen McKinley Henderson and, and I thought like, uh, I, I can't, I can't give up design. And, and, and I came back and I thanked Jimmy for the offer. And I said, you know, I'm happy to be over hire for you, but I, I, and Jimmy was like, yeah, 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 I'll keep calling you. Never called me again. That was it. That was the last day I ever worked at, at the new Amsterdam and, and it was fine. And, and he was, you know, he was right. 
you know, I, I, he needed someone who could really commit to him. Right. And, and I needed to really commit to design. And so I stopped, that was it. I stopped taking any work as an, as a mixer, as an engineer. And, and I really didn't stand behind a, a soundboard until now that I design operas, sometimes I'll mix the operas, uh, but very rarely, e even there, I try and have, have a, have an, an engineer for it. So yeah, I, I just got to that point where I was like, you know what, I, I've, I've been working and it really was, it was like a work your way up. Every, every show that I did well led to other work and shows that I did badly clearly didn't, <laughs> you know, thank God. You exactly. Know. Yeah. <laughs> and there were, you know, I, I would be a liar if I said, if I, if I were to say I did every show perfectly, but I found that the, 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 the harder I worked and the more I, and it very, very absolutely is. It is a giving 130% of your life to it way of growing. And I don't know that it's healthy. I can't, I can't evaluate that. Um, I, what I can say is that it really, well, you know, I was doing uh, my, by, by 2007, um, which is the year that they, that where I got that uh, Obie award for sustained excellence in, in some design, I did 21 shows in a year wow. and, and and thank god they recognize you know maybe seven of them were excellent so maybe that's why it's that's the sustained excellence <laughs> i think or it's sustained slashed excellent exactly <laughs> exactly um you know so it, it definitely got to the point where i was just non-stop show to show to show to show to show um and that was the 0607 season and then i had a kid and i was like i want to be around my child and so i really cut cut way back but that was the way i mean that really was my journey towards doing it yeah acknowledgement i actually and i you know it's interesting the parallel of like that resident assistant designer engineer position and i go i think it's a similar path for directing you know you're assistant directing and then you're going off doing your own project and assistant directing you're going off and learning the whole time if you're if you're using that assistantship correctly, mm. you're observing and learning and taking it, you know, you're not just waiting to show what you know, but mm. take the room to realize these people know a lot and I can learn about that. Um, I would love to ask us so much, but I think I'm going to ask just to, if on that, do you have advice that you share with people today who want to start out? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just—it's hard, but I—I I, I think it's about always showing up and always being fully present when you show up. You know, not taking projects that you don't have the the ability to do excellently. I think one of the things that's um, most important is is to do the best work that you are capable of doing, and not to. And I, you know, I'm a big fan of, I, I do a lot of co-design work. I do a lot of uh, sharing, uh, bringing people in, trying to get, you know, bring someone in as an associate, not an assistant, bring someone as an, as an idea partner. Um, but I, I, you know, I think a lot of it is also about knowing what shows to turn down. Um, uh, you know, one of the smartest moves I ever made uh, after I was the associate on contact and Susan Stroman said to me, you know, I'd like to work with you as a designer. And I said, I'm not ready for you. I, I would, I would mess up. I'm not, 
I'm really good at this sound editing thing and I'm really good at talking to you about ideas, but I'm not ready for Broadway as, as the sole design, as the lead designer yet. So I think that that's, that is an important part of it is, is to say, um, you know, I can do this with excellence and, and to risk. I mean, I always try something new. Every show I try and take on a new aspect, but, and it's not about saying like, don't, don't punch hard, don't go high, but, but saying like, know when, uh, know when you're going, when you're setting yourself up to fail. Well, right. Right. Because as you said, you didn't get work from things you didn't do well. And also you got to say, so saying no to that is one thing, but also saying no to three years at Lion King. Right. Exactly. Like that sounds money and everybody wants security. That sounds great, but Oh, that's going to stop this opportunity that is in front of you. That's not a dream. That's like actually close. Yeah. And the other thing I would, I would say is like, is definitely to focus on, on art that excites you. I think that there's, there's, um, there's a mindset of like, I want to achieve a certain level of whatever Lord theater, Broadway, I want it. But, but in the end, if, if it turns into a grind, it's going to end quickly and badly. Um, and if it's, if, if you're working with artists and collaborators that excite you and that embrace you and that you embrace, I mean, I, I I've made, I've made my career, uh, largely outside of the, of the commercial theater. You know, I do a lot of experimental work. I've also, you know, been gifted with the invitation to many, many rooms where I'm the minority in the room where, you know, and it's been, a, it's been a gorgeous gift and, and, and I'm working hard. We, we actually started something at MTC to try and undermine that a little bit. You know, there was this, um, uh, that's like a, well, I'll go there, but yes, like be in places that you are excited to be, be in places where you feel like you're making a difference or where your art is making a difference or where you're collaborating well. And I think that that, that will make the great art, you know, uh, try, you know, there, there is always some way to engage a play or, or musical, but, but find the ones that really speak to you if you can, you know, and I also like when I was young, I just said yes to everything everything I could fit into my schedule, I said yes to, um, you know, and, and, and I didn't have, you know, I, I didn't have a, a, a financial safety net. So in a way I had to say yes to a lot of things to pay the bills, but artistically, the more I could do that was um, engaging me as an artist and, and engaging me as a collaborator was, those were the shows that always led to more work, yeah. you know, um, the, the, the other thing that we're trying to do at MTC, which I, I do want to like, I, I want to give a, a big shout out to both the union and to MTC for this, um, is that when we were coming back from the pandemic, um, and I was already in conversation with MTC about, uh, cost of living because we were supposed to do it in, in 2000, right. uh, rather 2020, rather not 2000, we're supposed to do it in 2020. Um, and obviously couldn't. Um, so I was already sort of having had a good relationship with Stephen Kaus, who's the lead producer there. And I, I think, I mean, I don't think that's his title. It's, but he's he's the 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 boots on the ground artistic producer. Um, and Kaus and I started talking in '01 about Skeleton Crew, and this was at a time when a lot of the Broadway theaters were saying over and over again. Um, we can't do, you know, we don't, 
we don't have black designers who are qualified. We don't have BIPOC designers who are qualified. We don't have non-binary designers that are qualified to do all of these plays. And, and I said, well, how, how, how can you say that there are all of these designers out there? They said, but they haven't worked on Broadway. And right. I said, well, they can't work on Broadway if you don't let the, you know what I mean? And there is a, there, I will say, and this has been, I've been told this by multiple people, in, including directly, the Roundabout is a theater that has, has said on record, we will never hire a designer who's not designed at the Roundabout before. That doesn't make any sense. So it's a closed shop forever. Closed, right. right? And, and so, you know, on a project where they're looking for this, this came up, has come up a, a couple of times, but I know that there were projects where they wanted an all female or female body design team and no one had ever sound, they'd never had a female sound designer there. So they, they said, we can't do it. So you're going to have to have a male. Like, I mean, so, so I said to Kaus and I, I called Carl, Carl Mueller, who's the business agent at MTC. And I said, can we make an apprenticeship program? Can we make a Broadway apprenticeship program where, we open it up and we find candidates who are, uh, you know, BIPOC, who are non-binary, who are, who are underrepresented on Broadway. And we, and we say, they're going to come along. And even if they have, they're not ready to be the assistant, let's find some money. I'll take, and I said, I'll take a, I'll take a week of, of it out of my check. I said, but let's find the money to fund them to be present. Let's get them on a union contract and let's get them on like, I said, well, let's get all five of the all four of the Lord Broadway companies to buy in. I don't know if anyone else has. MTC has, but the notion of like, if you could say like, okay, I want to be a sound designer on Broadway, and I haven't had traditional access, and I come and I assist, you know, you. Kyle Suleiman and Rob Kaplowitz and you know and Scott Lair and Brian Ronan or Jessica Paz on you know on these shows, um, then 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 I've worked and and what we did is they actually will give a week's union contribution. So they pay at union assistant rate and they give a week's, they put them on a one week union contract. So at the end of it, and, and the union has made an agreement that at the end of it, they will waive the cost. If you do four of these, the union will, will waive the cost of applying to join the union. So you can get your union membership out of it and you get, and, and it's only just starting. I mean, we did it, we did it on, um, Skeleton crew, MTC is doing it. Yeah. We had an observer on, uh, and I actually brought in an, an assistant who, had ne who again, is an incredibly qualified designer uh, named Daniel Eisen, but he's never had access to Broadway. He's a Philly-based designer. So, you know, and, you know, and, and, and so Dan came up and, and worked with me and, um, and Emily Biles worked with us on cost of living. And the idea of like, let's crack that crap open so that I can say, so, so that when when a producer comes to me and says, "You're the sound," you know, I'm put, I'm doing air quotes, and you can't see them on a podcast, but I can hear um, them. Uh, yeah, they're like, "You're the quote unquote blackest sound designer we have," and I'm this white ass whitey guy. I, I can say like, "No, they're out there. They're qualified. This person has worked on Broadway. This person has worked on Broadway. Like, let's break that crap down so that I can turn shows down and not turn them down to hand them to another straight white dude." Or just yeah, to a to a person who, you know, you may be that the right person in the room, but yeah, you don't want to hand it to the person who's not the right person in the room, and also you don't hand it to somebody who doesn't, isn't ready, like you have experienced before. You've now created opportunities where people. It's going to be a stretch, but they're prepared. But they're ready. They've been there. They've been in the room. They understand the way the structures work. They understand, you know, and 
And the other thing is, and I, I have said this many times and I'll say it a million more, at least in sound, I can't speak for other, other fields, although I'm pretty sure it's true in other fields. If you, if you Broadway producer bring someone in who's a stretch and they're not getting it, they will phone a friend and we will step up. There is no question that anyone, I mean, even someone I don't know, you know, but certainly anyone that I've worked with, if they're, if they're in a position where they're like, I can't figure out how to make this work, I will sit down with them. I will come in for a couple of days. You know, I, you know I'm not going to replace them. And I'm not, you know, I want to come and help them and lift them up so, so that their work, they're already ready. And if there's some dumb logistical thing about the way you deal with a sound shop, or some logistical thing about the way you work with a local one. Crew. Right, that's just information. That's no, exactly. That's, that's, that's received knowledge. That's a, the, 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 the talent is not questionable, right? There is a huge pool of incredibly talented artists and they, they cross every demographic line. The only thing that, that they lack is opportunity and access. And so let's, Get rid of that and let's let's get you know this whole thing about because broadway is the thing about broadway is they want to be safe right yeah and that's why a lot of broadway gets kind of boring and gets kind of formulaic they want to be safe they're trying to uh minimize their risks so if they take a big risk on the project maybe they want we're you know and and so let's let's not be so safe because art needs risk and it's a very small risk compared to the risk of deciding to adapt Kimberly Akimbo to be a musical, right? I mean, David Lindsay Bear wrote Kimberly. We did that play at the O'Neill, and I, the idea, like, I love that they're doing it as a musical, but that's a huge artistic risk. It's not a big risk to bring in some designer who maybe hasn't, hasn't been in that building before. Exactly. Or, you know, or a, a choreographer or a director, like, learn their work, get to know, but don't, th this whole idea of like, you have to prove yourself in order to prove yourself. It's so frustrating. So we're trying to like, this is like a tiny way to try and remove a barrier to say like, hey, let's, let's open the doors. This notion that there is a, a, a tiny group of people who have some sort of magic arcane knowledge, it's such garbage and it's so frustrating. So I guess that would be my other <laughs> piece of advice is, is don't let anyone tell you you don't know what you're doing, right? Like as an artist, if you think you don't know what you're doing, okay. But never let anyone else tell you you don't know what you're doing. And if you think you don't know what you're doing, ask someone. You know, there, sure, there's YouTube tutorials and da-da-da. Call a designer. Call yeah. a colleague. There is, there is this group called the TSDCA, Theatrical Sound Designers and Composers of America. They're, they're, it is an open organization. Anyone can apply. Anyone can join. You can join as, as just after college. You have to be done with college, but you can early career. You can join us. And there is a community that is ready to say like, yes, come talk to me. Come sit in on my tech beforehand. I'll, you know, I've, I've showed people how to tune sound systems. Dozens and dozens of people have come into my quiet time because it's just knowledge. I, I, I loved every bit of that conversation. I'm just really grateful for it and grateful to hear, you know, the level of artistry and, you know, all the challenges of putting Philip, but also just all the work 
that goes into the thoughtfulness of all the collaborations and also just the commitment that he has to, you know, opening doors and making sure that we are accessible as an industry and just talking about that idea of making it available to people. And I also love the fact at the end, just that idea of like, of course I'll share it. It's just knowledge. And, you know, I have a thing I've been uh, thinking about teaching a lot lately and actually because I have to write my teaching philosophy. I was applying for a job and, you know, one of the foundational things that I have that I learned when I started teaching is if, because I do this Socratic method a lot, I ask questions, leading people to things, but I realize if you need somebody to know something, tell them, because it's not a secret, right? How they apply it, how they utilize it, how they do it, that's their art. But if you need somebody to know something, you just tell them and it's, it's information, it's knowledge, and like, here, take it, see what you can do with it. And funny to think of that as generosity, but it is generous, but I think we should all be doing it for each other. And so I'm really grateful for the conversation. I, I hope all of you enjoyed it as much as I did. And thank you, Rob. And, and that idea of sharing knowledge is one of the things that the Farm Theater does, you know, hopefully with the podcast and workshops and uh, the college collab, you know, trying to demystify the process of making theater. And so I'm going to say with that, as we're coming to the end of the year, you know, if you want, we're doing an annual fundraising or something on Facebook end of the year giving, or you can visit the website, www.thefarmtheater.org, and all of your support is appreciated. It allows for the podcast to happen. It allows for all the programming to happen. And I really thought about this other thing that it allows to happen for all arts organizations and all process-based organizations. It allows for mistakes. You know, the tighter the budget, the less risk you can take. And, and you know, you can't have, you have less room for error. And um, as I'm thinking about this year, and process, like part of what makes a successful process is sometimes you don't get it right. But when you don't get it right, you either scrap it or you figure out how to reinvest and and reassess and how do we do it differently this time. And and with that, the resources and support to allow the process to fully get it, you know, take place and be invested in allows for mistakes and allows for breathing room so that people can think about things, try things, do it differently. And that's what your support allows for the farm, and I really appreciate it. So thank you. And if you can support, great. And just know that listening to the podcast is a way to support. I've talked about this a lot lately. Sometimes it's financial support. Sometimes it's just showing up. Sometimes it's saying, hey, I'm with you. And that is incredibly meaningful. So with that, we're out. (laughs) 